Anne Lowe was one of America's most significant designers. I didn't say African-American, Asian, Chinese. I said one of America's most significant designers. She really helped pave the way for other African-American designers in the fashion industry. Started her career in Alabama, where she learned to sew from her mother and her grandmother, both who had formerly been enslaved. Anne Lowe was an artist in the truest sense of the word. It was her life's work to create beautiful gowns. And she said that she never, never ran out of ideas for her dresses and gowns. Each of her gowns was an original. She had a career that spanned more than 50 years, and she worked with some of America's most prominent families. The most famous commission that she had was for Jacqueline Boudier when she married the then Senator John F. Kennedy in 1953. And the story is told that when she went to the house to deliver the gown, the butler answered the door and told her that all of the servants or help had to go to the back. And she said something to the effect that if that were to happen, that the bride would not be dressed for that day because she would come back to New York and they let her in the front door. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to a Fashion Moment podcast. Whether you're a fashion lover or just fashion curious, welcome. I literally love bringing you one-on-one interviews week after week with your fashion favorites. I get inspired every time, and I hope you do too. This podcast is not sponsored, and all of us here are freely giving our time because we all believe in this, and we love it. I would love to continue this great work and bring you even more content, exclusive features, and live events in the years ahead. If you love the podcast or just want to support, buy me a coffee. Yes, a coffee. You can visit buymeacoffee.com slash a fashion moment to become a fashion friend for one coffee a month, $5, or click the support tab to grab any amount you'd like. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash a fashion moment. Thank you for supporting us. Now on to the show. Elaine Nichols is the Supervisory Curator of Culture at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. A native of Charlotte, North Carolina, Nichols developed her love for African American history at a young age by listening to the stories about her heritage, culture, and resilience from elders in the family. Her love of history would later guide her academic pursuits. Nichols made her curatorial debut at the South Carolina State Museum, where she curated the exhibition, The Last Miles of the Way, African-American Funeral and Mourning Customs in South Carolina, 1890 to the present. The collection garnered worldwide attention, propelling Elaine up the ranks to become the museum's curator of history. In 2009, after completing work on the Save Our National Treasures project, Nichols was recruited into her current role at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, where she curates a variety of costumes, textiles, and decorative arts to tell the stories that reflect significant moments in African American culture. I sat down with Elaine to discuss her long-standing career as a curator, what it was like to meet Rosa Parks, Black fashion history, and more. I hope that you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Well, hello and welcome to A Fashion Moment. I am so thrilled to have you here, Elaine. My heart is literally jumping out of (laughs) my chest because you just do just amazing work and all of the work that you've done over the course of your career and at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So we are thrilled to have you. How are you? I am great. And thank you so much, Kirsten, for having me on your show. Uh, not a problem. We are we are truly honored. So I'd love to just 
really start from the beginning of, of your life. You know, what was it like for you growing up in North Carolina and, and how did it shape your desire to study African-American history? Well, I was part of a family and a community network, including my teachers and people in my neighborhood who supported me in so many ways. I grew up feeling that there were people who had my best interests at heart. Hmm. And within my family, I was I was connected to multiple generations who provided a foundation for me. I was very, very fortunate to know my grandmother's father and most of his siblings who were born in the mid to late 19th century. Um, It gave me a sense of, of awe and joy to know that these people were, and I was very aware that they're very old They were in relatively good health. Um, They had very strong and clear memories of their past lives. And they were very loving toward me and my siblings. Wow. Wow. Um, I love it. And and how you you mentioned your great aunt Katie in in a previous (laughs) article. And I just thought it was just so awesome. And I'm like, Ooh, if I had a great aunt Katie, how did, how did she change your life? And what was it like just finding out about, you know, the atrocities of slavery at such an early age? And she was my maternal grandfather's sister. Wow. Um, She was doing the, she was born during the latter part of slavery and lived to be over a hundred years old. But again, she was one of those persons who had a very clear memory of her life and experiences. And as a very young child, I had an opportunity to spend a week with her, her daughter, and her son-in-law. And I adored them. They adored me. And my aunt and I had a routine. We would get up early in the morning, you know, like five or six o'clock in the morning, and go walking. And she talked about the different herbs and plants and how they could be used to heal the body. Uh, I say to people, I think that my interest in natural healing probably stems from that experience with her. Hmm. But she also talked about being enslaved and how she wanted to learn to read and write and was so determined to do it that even when her master would beat her, she would just kept keep going back to it wow. because she was determined to become literate. And, and she was very proud of the fact that she could read and write. And after slavery uh, ended, she was able to go to school. Wow. So my impression of my aunt's experience in slavery, even then as a young child, I was, I was surprised that yeah. she was not bitter about her experience. She didn't have any or she didn't express any anger or resentment about what happened to her. Wow. While it was traumatic, you know, she didn't paint over the trauma of what she experienced. She was somehow able to build up a resiliency and a defense around her such that she didn't absorb the negative part of it. She didn't internalize an external view of her as worthless. And she was one of the kindest, most loving persons that I know. Wow. Well, we certainly learned something from her today. Wow. That is amazing. So, you know, you you develop this love for African-American history and culture and and you become aware of of the atrocities of slavery, but also the resilience of African-American people you know, how did you discover like curation and what a curator was? (laughs) That, that happened much later in life. (laughs) I went to the university of North Carolina at Charlotte at undergraduate school. Oh, wow. Awesome. And, um, met, I guess my sophomore year, Dr. Bertha, she was Maxwell then, but she later became Maxwell Roddy. Uh, and she became head of the Black Studies program at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And she just did everything to imbue us with knowledge and information about the contributions of uh, African-Americans in the arts and science and history. So it, it created that kind of passion and love 
for African-American history and culture. Wow. And how I discovered what a curator was, <laughs> was that while I was in graduate school at the University of North Carolina, University of South Carolina in Columbia, I was working on my degree in uh, a master's in archaeology. And I met the late uh, Dr. Myrtle Glasgow, who was the director of the Avery Research Center in Charleston, South Carolina. And she was part of an advisory group working with the South Carolina State Museum in Columbia. And I should probably say the planned South Carolina State Museum because they had a building and they had some collections. They hardly had anything related to African-Americans. Wow. So she suggested that I should volunteer to review the label copy that the museum was developing for their new exhibitions and look at the presence or absence of African-American in those stories that they were trying to tell. Now, as I said, I was in graduate school, so I was really reluctant to help because <laughs> yeah. who has the time and energy um, to do it? Uh, but, but anyway, I did do it. I, I did the review and they were, the museum was very pleased and asked, uh, offered me a job as a guest curator. And I initially said no to the offer because it was a job curating an exhibition about African-American film and morning customs. Mm. And I thought, that's such a depressing and sad topic. <laughs> and, <Yep. laughs> and who in the world would be interested in such a story? Mm. Um, so I, as I said, I, I, I said no. Um, the backstory is that I did two things. I went home and opened that refrigerator and I had a bottle of water and a head of cabbage in my refrigerator. Um, and I also had a friend who uh, taught um, middle school students. Mm. So I went and talked to them because I realized that students will tell you the truth, whereas adults <laughs> may shade that a bit. Yes. Um, and I asked them if we had an exhibition about African-American film and morning customs, would they come and would they bring their parents and friends? And their little, little eyes lit up. <laughs> it, it occurred to me that death and sex were two of those taboo subjects in which we hadn't really talked with our young people about in any extensive way. And uh, so I called the museum back and said, I'm if that job is still available, I'm interested in it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love it. And they, they said, yes. Um, wow. And what was one, one of the things that was interesting about it was I found that it was fascinating research because I actually went out and interviewed over 100 people talking about African-American film and morning customs in South Carolina. At the end of the day, the exhibit ex experience really very, very positive response from people all over the world. I mean, wow. from Europe, Africa, people would, Australia would write to us and say, can we have a copy of that catalog? Wow. And the New York Times sent a reporter and they did a full page and a half article with color pictures, which at the time was really unusual. Mm -hmm. um, because again, it was one of those topics where we just weren't talking about it openly. And uh, so it was an interesting experience. And as a result of it, uh, the museum offered me a permanent job as a curator. For yeah. those who don't know, like, what is a curator? I feel like a lot of people use the term and may not be clear as to what a curator does. A curator is a caretaker of collections and those collections can be both physical objects, but they can also be information, hmm. uh, especially as we move into the digital age. Um, it could be images. We're responsible for developing, collecting the research that helps illuminate the stories about those objects. Again, whether they're physical objects or it's information. Wow. And uh, and I think of curators as people who want to share that information with the public and other scholars. 
powerful. So powerful. And, you know, I just have to go back to the exhibition that you worked on. Were there any sort of like nuances between African-American culture and funeral dressing in particular that you uncovered? I think most African-American dress standards were based on European and European-American standards. Like um, when a person passed away, mourners were expected to wear dark, uh, somber clothes to match the solemnity of the occasion. Mm. And it typically meant wearing black. There, and there were actually prescribed rules for how long you wore black and what the next uh, colored gradation would be that would be considered appropriate. And, and I was going to say obviously, but maybe it's not obvious. There were different standards for men and for women. Um, widowers were uh, expected to wear these dark clothes for a shorter period of time, mm. as opposed to women who were widowed, that they wore them up to two years. Um, wow. And, and if you think about doing certain periods of time, like during the Civil War, where you might be experiencing the death of multiple relatives, you could be in black for an extremely long period of time. Wow. Uh, and then the sort of the next color would have been um, a kind of mauve or uh, some shade of dark purple and then gray. So anyway, as a, again, there were very prescribed rules that come out of European customs and traditions about what people, including... Uh, underwear, uh, handkerchiefs had to be boarded with black. Wow. Uh, you weren't expected to go to social occasions for a certain period of time. So again, rules that were written down. One of the interesting things in terms of dress that I discovered was um, um, hair. Hmm. Um, both blacks and whites would cut a lock of a deceased person's hair but they use them in different ways. Uh, whites uh, created what's called mourning jewelry that they would actually wear. Um, wow. <laughs> you, could create, you could create earrings. What? Uh, pendants or lockets. I've seen some really beautiful gold mourning jewelry. Wow. Where you wove the hair into a pattern and placed it into a locket, for instance. Um, whereas blacks would cut the hair and place it in a Bible, for instance. Hmm. And it was a source of protection because the idea was that evil spirits would have to read all of the words in the Bible <laughs> before they could do any harm to you. Whites also created hair wreaths, um, and they were placed in uh, glass shadow boxes. Hair wreaths could be made from hair from the deceased people, but it could also be made from hair from living members in the family. So you would look at this beautiful arrangement of flowers made out of hair, leaves made out of hair, and it might be uh, really a genealogy chart, chart in a sense. Um, so similar uses of, again, cutting the hair, but doing different things with it. Uh, it was fascinating research. Oh, my God. I'm like blown away. I'm like, OK, <laughs> on my list, look up hair wreaths and jewelry. Like, wow, that's amazing. And you if know, you're in South Carolina, the South Carolina State Museum had a piece of jewelry, hair, a uh, morning jewelry that was on display it was gold. And if I recall correctly, it had pearls on it, but it was absolutely ex exquisite. And it belonged to a family where multiple generations of the women wore it during their weddings. Wow. Um, so it in some ways may sound like it's sort of strange and odd, but again, you see some of these pieces and they're just beautiful. It's, it's like you're wearing a piece of your lineage, Absolutely. literally. Absolutely. Wow. wow. So you, you're, you're working there full time and then you, you actually start doing, you know, exhibitions about women, like subjects that 
sort of, you know, touch on women, women's issues and the the experience of women, which wasn't, I guess, really very popular at the time, which I thought was interesting. Like what inspired you to sort of elevate, you know, those stories and, 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 and those particular types of exhibitions? In, in many ways, I combine my interest in developing exhibitions about African-American in the history of South Carolina and women in South Carolina history. So it, it was a natural kind of progression or transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite exhibitions was called Dress for the Occasion mm-hmm. that looked at uh, famous South Carolinians and what they wore for some aspect of their lives. And I have lots of stories about that exhibition. One of the persons that I featured in that exhibit was Sharon uh, Shannon Faulkner, who's a young lady who integrated the Citadel. You know, it was so long ago that people probably have forgotten that the Citadel was an all-male school. And she ultimately... Um, left the Citadel and, and did not graduate because she was harassed wow. so um, so much. But she was from Powdersville, South Carolina. I think that's a town. It's a relatively small town in the uh, upstate of South Carolina. And I, I drove to the, I, to the, to the um, neighborhood mm. and asked people, where does she live? My assumption was this, this is a small rural town Everybody knows everybody. And they told me the name of the street and the address for the house. And I went and knocked on the door and her mother opened the door. Oh, my goodness. I had my card and my ID. And I told her I was from the South Carolina State Museum and that I wanted to include her daughter in this exhibition dress for the occasion. She invited me into her house and we sat and talked for hours. And she said, I think, she said, let me talk with my daughter. And I think what we would like to lend to the museum is the outfit that she wore when she was admitted. Mm. So it was a a tan colored jacket, um, cream colored skirt and the shoes. In the course of all of the interaction that I had at that moment and even after the exhibition opened, I never met Shannon Faulkner. But I was so proud that we were able to represent her story in the museum, because one of the things that the mother said to me that just shocked me, she said that they had gone to a chapel service and the parents who were there cursed, you're in church, in chapel, and they cursed about cursed her daughter basically by saying, what is this so-and-so, so-and-so doing here? You know, how do we stand on our Christian faith and do something so hurtful to another person in church? Mm. I just felt like it was important to make sure again, that her story was represented in the, uh, the uh, exhibition. Wow. And she was. That's so powerful. I I just have chills thinking about that. Hey guys, it's Justin, jersey number 14. And I'm Corey, jersey number 72. You like talking about sports teams gear? We We do! do. (laughs) We did that, we synced it. We didn't even plan to. Damn right. That's all right. Uh, we're We're the gear freaks, man. We are. I can't wait. We're going to be talking about gear from all four of the major sports, what we like, what we don't like, even more importantly. Can't wait to get going, man. We're going to talk about trash uniforms. Junk. We are going to talk about great uniforms. Throwbacks. High school. <laughs> That's all real. Nothing is off limits. So, I mean, if you want, if you want, if you've got gear that you want us to talk about, hit us up, gearfreaks99 at gmail, or follow us on the Twitter or Instagram, uh, gear underscore freaks. Boom. We'll see you soon. And I'll share one last story. Oh, yes, please bring them on. Please. (laughs) Absolutely. I actually have a lot of stories about that. I mean, I could do this all day Um, with you. Kitty Black Perkins was, um, at the time, a, a designer at Mattel. Mm. Uh, she designed dolls and clothing for the, the dolls. And she was, she's originally from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Wow. 
um, I reached out to her and asked her if she would come and be part of a program because I felt like very few people think about designers being at Mattel and, and doll designers. Uh, and she agreed and she and I connected. In fact, we have a, an ongoing friendship as a result of that. But one of the things that she did, and, and it was unbeknownst to me at that time, she actually created a Barbie doll for the state of South Carolina. Um, and she was wearing a large pink ballroom type gown and had gold shoes. I mean, you didn't see the shoes because it's a big ball gown. She placed it in a plexiglass case and added a working crystal chandelier. So it represented some of the ideas and notions that people have about oh, Southern elegance and um, femininity, but the doll was not white. Her skin was um, a, a light brown color. So wow. She could have been black, she could have been Hispanic, she could have been any number of people. She could have been Native American uh, when you looked at it. And um, that was a real highlight to have, again, this unique one-of-a-kind Barbie doll that she created for the state of South Carolina that was part of that exhibition. Wow. That's amazing. So, you know, that's we have exactly what people said to us when they saw it. I th- um, the Columbia Museum of Art was planning an exhibition about Barbie dolls and had <sighs> called me to say, we're going to reach out to this. And this is recent. Oh my goodness. Reach out to the state museum to see if we can borrow that doll. Yes. Please do. I'm I'm a huge Barbie <laughs> fan, Barbie collector. <laughs> yeah. So that I, I would love to see that. What led you to the National Museum of African American History and Culture? Like, like how did that happen? Okay, that's a short story. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that one's quick. <laughs> that, that one's quick. Uh, in May of 2009. Lonnie Bunch, who's now the secretary of the Smithsonian, Rex Ellis, and Kinshasha Holman Connell came to South Carolina. They came to Charleston and Buford, South Carolina, with the Save Our African American Treasures program. Wow. And it was a program that uh, Mr. Bunch had created in 2008, because basically, even though the museum had not opened, we didn't officially open until 2016. Mm-hmm. Bunch decided that we needed to function as a museum. So we were collecting objects, we were telling stories, we developed programs, and the Save Our African American Treasures program was one of those programs, our our signature program for the museum, because it encouraged the public to bring family photographs, quilts, documents, and other objects to meet with experts uh, who talk to them about how to preserve those um, various aspects of African-American life. Wow. And he asked me to work as a reviewer for those two programs. And, and I actually knew him and knew Rex Ellis. I didn't know Kinshasa at the time from years of working in the museum field. And uh, so it was not hard for me to say, yes, I'd love to be a reviewer. (laughs) At the end of the Treasures program, literally at the end, we were in Buford and he said, Elaine, this has been a job interview for you. And I want you to come to Washington, (laughs) D.C. to work as a senior curator. And as I said, that was in May. And I said, well, I think I need to go in and give my museum notice and pack up my house (laughs) before that can happen. So in October of 2009, I moved to Washington, D.C. to start working at the museum. And uh, it was exciting. I've always um, journeyed to Washington, D.C. to do research. It's just the perfect place. I love D.C. I never thought that I would live here. Um, But it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life to come to work for Lonnie Bunch and to work at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Oh, amazing. And Lonnie is just, just 
brilliant and and kind, an actual kind human being. It's just so great to hear him speak. I love hearing him speak. Can I tell you an interesting story? Yes. I have a friend of mine who is a minister. She's an AME minister. And she called me on Saturday and she said, guess who is in our Sunday school booklet? I said, who? She said, Lonnie Bunch. (laughs) In the AME Sunday school book for this past Sunday. Amazing. I asked her, I said, please send me a copy of that so I can share. (laughs) I mean, the fact that he is, his influence uh, is so important and so powerful that it's made it into the AME Sunday school book. Yes. Yes. Amen. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so what were, what were some of your, or some of, some of the key, like unexpected findings that sort of surprised you throughout your career about African-American fashion and clothing? I think it's realizing Early on, I found I found it surprising that African-Americans have been so heavily involved in the fashion industry Mm. Um, from the from the very earliest periods of time that we can think about. Um, So I think that was probably the the biggest, biggest surprise. And um, I continue to learn each day about the ways in which African-Americans are influencing fashion, Mm. uh, even today. Um, And I think it's important for us to make sure that we're looking for that information, that it is there. We just have to look forward. Yes. And I, it's so interesting, even, you know, when you go to the museum, you know, at the, the, the basement level, Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we're addressing, you know, slavery or when you guys address slavery, there is there, I, I remember seeing something about, was it, was it Negro goods? Um, the burlap, um, uh, the burlap items that the slaves would yes. make. And I just thought that was really interesting. I'm like, wait, we've been doing this, like from the beginning, like you mentioned, we're so intertwined. Right. And to your point, taking whatever materials we could find to create clothing for us and for our children uh, and finding ways to make sure that our stories are inserted in the lives of those children as they grow up. Wow. Amazing. So I have to ask, what was it like meeting the Rosa Parks? (laughs) Like, what was that? I mean, I just, when I, when I read that, I said, oh my goodness. Wow. Like Elaine, what happened? What was it like? (laughs) It it was an unexpected invitation from an educational group in South Carolina that said Rosa Parks is going to be coming through Columbia, South Carolina. It was kind of like the day of the event. Can you come at four o'clock? It was in the afternoon. It may not have been four o'clock. It was in the afternoon. And it's like, okay, of course, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to cancel any appointments I have or whatever so I can be there. Um, And and I have to say, everybody wanted to be there because there were so many people who were there that I only had a a few minutes to speak with her. Um, She was advanced in age. And I remember her as this quiet, soft-spoken but strong person. In fact, she, she spoke while she was seated. She wasn't standing. She was very positive and she encouraged people to think about how they could make changes in their communities and how they could make those changes now. You know, it's not like you have to look back to the past only, but that, that you really need to keep in mind that there was work that you could do right now. So it was almost like a charge that she was giving people wow. um, that this work that she had done, that others had done in terms of the modern civil rights movement was not over. And as long as you realize I can make a difference wherever I am, that that was the important message that she wanted to share with people. You can do something about the circumstances of this world. Just make a choice and, and start. Wow. Um, 
it it was um it was a very moving experience and um i uh ended up taking some pictures but they were the place where i had them develop turned them into slides oh no um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but either way i wanted to, i definitely i'm not a, a celebrity type person it's like uh, you know, lots of celebrities i don't have to have a picture with them yeah but in that moment and at that time i wanted to have a picture of rosa park and a picture with her wow um, because and she I- was such a, such an important figure for america um, yeah. you know i keep um talking to people about her as somebody who was deliberate and intentional, that people Mm. sort of tell the story or created the myth that she got on the bus and she was just tired and weary and (laughs) refused to sit down. They didn't understand or they don't know the history. This is a woman who was trained uh, in civil disobedience. Mm. She was an activist uh, with the NACP. In fact, when they had cases of uh, uh, where white males were charged with rape against black women, they, she was the person that they sent out to investigate. Wow. That's not a meek person. That's not someone who is helpless. Uh, again, she was intentional and she was deliberate in her thinking about how things needed to change in segregated America at that time. Sorry, I'm just letting some background noise pass. Okay. Um, well, I have to ask, how did you get the dress? The dress was actually part of the Black Fashion Museum collection mm. that the museum acquired in 2007 when Joyce Bailey, who is the daughter of Lois Alexander Lane, mm. who founded the Black Fashion Museum, in New York in 1979. And she built this massive collection of thousands of objects that told a variety of stories, uh, whether it was about fashion per se, uh, but she also collected everyday dress-related items, um, like clothes that were worn or made by enslaved African-Americans. And she and Rosa Parks were friends. And... um, Mrs. Parks donated this yellow dress that's on exhibit at the museum. And it was a dress that she was working on um, uh, in 1955 and had with her on the bus, I I understand, um, during that time when she was arrested. So it was part of the Black Fashion Museum collection. And the museum, again, was fortunate in that Lois Alexander Lane and her daughter, Joyce, Bailey decided to donate that collection to the museum. We still have well over 2,000 objects that are in that collection that we're processing as quickly as we can. Wow. So we can make it available (sighs) to the public and to scholars who want to do dress and fashion research. Um, I'm, I cannot wait. (laughs) I'm like, I'm just like jumping out of my seat right now. Uh, And I'm sure uh, quite a few of our listeners are, are super excited about that as well. Can't wait, but I know. And and if I can add one other thing. Yes, um, please. And that is that we keep finding some real jewels in that, uh, in the black fashion museum collection. Um, We have a number of major African-American designers who are represented in the collection, including Zelda Wynn, Arthur McGee. Uh, We have a dress that Zelda Wynn created for Eartha Kitt. And it's a beautiful cream-colored dress. It has little flowers on it and some green accents. And there are some absolutely divine uh, shoes that match that dress. So as I said, we we are discovering oh my goodness wonderful things that are in that collection. Uh, as we're processing. I can't wait. So I, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna like wait. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna squeeze this in really quickly. But uh-huh. in your opinion, is there an African American fashion figure or trend that you believe deserves more recognition? You're like all of them. 
Uh, well, <laughs> that's exactly what I was kind of thinking is that yeah. all of those persons deserve recognition. Um, I would probably say that Anne Lowe mm. is the person who probably deserves the most recognition because she was one of America's most significant designers. I didn't say African-American, mm-hmm. Asian, Chinese. I said one of America's most significant designer. Wow. She really helped pave the way for other African-American designers in the fashion industry. Started her career in Alabama, where she learned to sew from her mother and her grandmother, uh, both who had formerly been enslaved. And during her life, she started at least five businesses that included her name. Anne Lowe was an artist. Think of her as an artist in the truest sense of the word. It was her life's work to create beautiful gowns. And she said that she never, never ran out of ideas for her dresses and gowns. Wow. Each of her gowns was an original, except for, let's say, bridesmaids gown, which were mm-hmm. intended to be the same. She had a career that spanned more than 50 years, uh, and she worked with some of America's most prominent families. Um, The most famous commission that she had was for uh, Jacqueline Bouvier when she married the then Senator John F. Kennedy in 1953. Uh, And there's a tragic story that uh, happened uh, probably 10 days or so before the wedding, she experienced a water uh, uh, problem in her workshop and the gown and (laughs) at least 10 of the dresses were destroyed. So she had to uh, enlist her employees to work night and day to recreate the um, bridal attire. And the story is told that when she went to the house to deliver the gown, the butler answered the door and told her that all of the servants or help had to go to the back. And she said something to the effect that um, if that were to happen, that the bride would not be dressed for that day because she would come back to New York. But they let her in the front door. Oh my but she faced those kinds of insults and discrimination throughout her life it never prevented her from pressing forward to achieve her dreams. Um, the, the, there were some circumstances that conspired against Anne Lowe, one of which was that she was not an astute businesswoman. Mm. But when you're in business, you have to have the creative aspect to create these gowns and dresses, but you have to have the business component. And she didn't have that except for a brief period of time in the 50s when her son, her her only child, worked for her and he was the office manager, the business management. She had stability. Otherwise, she lost her businesses because of uh, tax issues. And again, as I said, she wasn't a businesswoman. That wasn't her focus. She also had some health challenges where she... um, lost one eye to glaucoma and had cataracts in the other eye. Wow. Um, all of those things basically forced her ultimately to uh, close her business. But it's still, when you look at her life and you look at her life's work, there were decades of resilience and perseverance on her part. Wow. And the creativity. That was her commitment. She wanted to make uh, beautiful dresses. Uh, When you look at some, and we have uh, quite a few in our collection. One is on exhibit uh, in the Cultural Expressions Gallery. And you look at these roses, all of which were handmade roses, uh, something that she started learning to do when she was about five years old. Wow. um, Taking scraps of fabric and creating these uh, little flowers um, which became her signature uh, accent on many of these dresses. 
But you look at them and you realize how labor intensive this work was. You understand her passion and commitment to making these absolutely gorgeous um, dresses. The other thing uh, for people who sew uh, and, and appreciate the construction of a gown, she the insides were probably as beautiful as the outside. Wow. And she uh, would fit the gown so that you didn't even need to wear underwear, for instance. You just stepped into the gown and you were, you were good. She designed the gowns so that they could be altered at later points in time. So if your body changed, you gained weight, you lost weight, you could make those adjustments. Wow. Genius. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I have to go back and, and look at the, the dresses again. Um, amazing. I'm going to be looking for that for sure. Um, well, we're coming, unfortunately, to the end. Um, and something that I typically ask all of our guests is, and I'm sure you have a million of these, but what is one of your favorite fashion moments of all time? It could be personal, it could be professional, or even something that you've witnessed. I know, so I, many. I know, <laughs> no, that's true. And I, what I was going to say is I don't know that I have a favorite fashion trend because it's subject to change as I learn more about a particular styles or, or trends. Or, so, or a moment. It could be uh, something like you saw when you were younger and you're just like, oh my God, like this is, ah, oh, it's just amazing. Like just <laughs> something that brings that magic. Yeah. I, I will, I will pick a, um, a trend, <laughs> the flapper dresses of the 1920s. Wow. Because they represented one of the periods of women's liberation. It, it was a celebration of youth culture and uh, resisting these restrictive clothes. If you think about clothes from the early part of the 20th century that had corsets and bowing, although there's some good things that I can actually say about a corset having made one and worn it, uh, it can be a great support for your back. Not if you uh, if you don't pull it too tight and use it in yep. an inappropriate way. So <laughs> it's, it doesn't have to always be bad. But but these restrictive kind of ideas and clothing. Uh, were challenged by young people. Wow. Um, so they they were rebelling against uh, everything. They were wearing uh, excessive makeup, driving cars. Um, they were also smoking cigarettes, which I wouldn't say was a good thing. But again, they were challenging the societal notions about what it meant to be feminine, what it meant to be a woman. Wow. Um, and those changes in many ways also symbolize this kind of social political upheaval of the time. Um, it was also the period of uh, the age of jazz and music, mm -hmm. dance and, and freedom. So the flapper dress. I love and it. They were often made of some fabulous silk materials with beading and decoration. <sighs> Gorgeous. I'll pick that one. <laughs> I love it. I know. I'm like, there's a million, there's a million. Well, I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, all of our listeners, you are truly, truly like a hero in our eyes. Like you've done, your work is just mind blowing. And we are so grateful that you're doing this work and, and really preserving the stories and the items and, and putting it at the forefront on a, on a <laughs> global level. <laughs> Thank you so very much for having me. Can I add one quick story? Um, please. I'm like, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to get kicked off. So I was like, let me, let me try. But yes, please, please do. In October of this year, we just had a major symposium. It was called Fashion, Culture, yes. Futures, African-American Ingenuity, Activism, and Storytelling. And we brought together major influencers in the fashion industry, African-Americans, who talked about um, the importance of legacy mm -hmm. and how African-Americans need to really look at and think about how their stories can be, and their work can be preserved going into the future. It was an amazing um, program. We do have that recording on yes. our website so people can revisit it. Um, but I think it's some real important information that people can do and get in terms of looking at sustained institutional change that goes beyond any moment in time. 
It was so good. And, and just, I mean, I I'll make sure that I include it in the show notes and we'll also promote it. Um, but how, like, I'm, I'm just curious, how did that even come together? Was that something that, uh, you were really passionate about doing like for a while now, or was, or was there something that sort of inspired you to do it? It came from multiple places. Um, uh, I met Shayla Simpson, who was a buyer, mo- a model uh, commentator and buyer for Ebony Fashion Fair some years ago. And she and I were talking about this idea about legacy. But it was really, uh, and, and Alexander, Alexandra, I'm sorry, Cunningham Cameron, who's a curator with Cooper Hewitt, came to me in like maybe 2018. And we were talking about the Willie Smith exhibition that she was yes. working on. So good. And we decided that we really needed to have a symposium where we could talk about fashion and race. But it was really B. Michaels, who's a couture oh, yeah. designer. He <laughs> asked me a question. He said, can you name one Black designer whose fashion legacy has outlived their passing? And the answer was no. I mean, I didn't have to think about that. You know, you have Yves Saint Laurent still in existence, Carl Lagerfeld. You can name a number of white fashion houses that have continued uh, beyond the death of that designer. But that is not the case for African Americans. And so I knew we needed to have this this conversation. And uh, we did. And it was a great response from people all over the world. Yes, yes. We will definitely include that. And that's so interesting. B. Michael would ask that question. (laughs) We love B. Michael. Well, and when you listen to his responses, you will appreciate what he was saying in terms, again, the sustained change that needs to happen. Yes. Yes. It's so beautiful. So much to be done. So much to be done. So thank, thank you so much, Elaine. Thank you. We truly, truly appreciate you being here. And where, like, where can people find more information about the museum? On our website. So even though, and then of course now the museum is open so they can um, uh, secure passes and visit the museum, but they can go to our website and find more information. And we've got some Huge surprises planned for you. <gasps> Can't that we refresh wait. all the time. Type in garments, type in clothing, type in the name of designers. And oh my goodness. Well, I got my little Anne Lowe uh, booklet and my little dress um, cookie cutter. So I'll make the little cake Wonderful. for the holidays. I can't wait. So I'll probably <laughs> put that on, um, on Instagram and TikTok, y'all. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for this week of A Fashion Moment. If you like what you hear, we'd love for you to join our community of listeners and spread the word about the show. We also want to hear from you. Share your favorite fashion moments and dream guests with us by sending an audio clip or email to a fashion moment podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Instagram at a fashion moment and you could be featured on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time for another fashion moment. Podcast production by Rebecca Rashid and John Taylor Williams. Digital media production by Megan Porras. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Patrick Patrickios for their song, Hot Coffee.